in the series on the Psalms, uh, called it Cries from the Heart, which is what the Psalms are. They're these emotional at times um, uh, uh, pieces of music. Oftentimes the Psalms were sung. And we relate to them. We love the Psalms. We memorize some of the Psalms because they encourage us. And we read them, we say, I know exactly how he feels. I know, ex I feel the same way. I relate. And that's the nice thing about the Psalms is we have this kind of emotional connection with the writers of them. And a lot of them are written by uh, King David, who we've taken quite a look at over the last number of weeks. This one is also written by King David, and it is Psalm 133. Now, you're going to like this message because it's only three verses long. <laughs> All right, so we could be in and out of here in 10 minutes if you like and just, you know, jase over the coffee if you like, okay? But I'm going to do my best to try and explain this psalm to you, Psalm 133, just three verses long. And it's kind of a bizarre psalm because it has these images in it that we look at and we say, what does that mean? Like, how, how do we relate to these things? So uh, I want to talk to you about the theme of unity today because that's the theme of the psalm the first verse how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity obviously brothers sisters he's not isolating a gender there uh, so this word unity which is often uh, the word that's used in most most english translations and i want to play around with the idea of unity this morning and is unity possible in the year 2021 because, wow, look around. You've got division everywhere. There is a lot of division. There's division I've seen in families. Um, maybe it was always there, but a pandemic sort of turns the, the knob from five to ten. And it amps up everything. So it seems like things that were always underneath the surface are just kind of ratcheted up a little bit with the pandemic division in families i've seen it people have a one position about you know whatever the vaccine and somebody else has another position you have this division that takes place we see division all over all over the culture all over the nation uh, we just got through another another election, which didn't change much at all, did it? <laughs> it was almost a copy-paste of the previous setup, right? So you've got a minority government, which is, you know, you kind of have division there. You've got to split. You've got half the people thinking this way and half the people thinking this way. And somehow, some way, hopefully, they're going to get along and run this nation. Uh, we see it around the world, conflict after conflict. And it just seems like when you, again, when you have a pandemic, this is all ratcheted up. And so I wonder, is it possible for people to be united, you know, relationships, even if it's two people, even in your home, even in your, your close relationships, even in your marriage, maybe there's division in it. Maybe there's conflict in it. Maybe there's disunity in it. Maybe in your your sports team or your classroom or your company or your marketplace or is it possible with all of these different views and all of these different positions that it seems like now people just love to argue especially on social media right 
Isn't it amazing how some people are incredibly vocal and angry and uh, they don't seem to have any, they don't rest. It's like they will argue with you on social media for 10 hours in a day. And you wonder, where did they get the time to do this, right? And then you meet those people face-to-face, and they can they be very, very different than what they were on social media. They're sort of a pussycat compared to what they were on social media. People love to argue. There's a great deal of anger that we see expressed uh, on social media, especially is unity possible this year in 2021? We could have asked the same question last year. And the psalm that we're about to take a look at suggests that, yes, it's possible, but it's exceptional. It's difficult to attain. It doesn't just automatically come, unity. So maybe you're having trouble in your really close relationship, your marriage or something. You say, well, how come it's not automatically nice? How come there isn't automatic harmony? Well, because you have to work at it. It's not something that comes instinctively, apparently. According to the psalmist, it is exceptional. It happens, but it's exceptional. It's amazing when it happens, but it's kind of exceptional. What do I mean? He says this in verse 2. It is like precious oil. So again, when people live together in unity, it's good, it's pleasant, says the author David. And by the way, this is a psalm of ascents, it's called. You might see that in your Bible. Uh, ascents traditionally means that these songs would be sung, probably, we think, uh, out loud as the people were headed up to Jerusalem, which is on a mountain. Um, they would go up there for uh, various what they call pilgrimage feasts in the Jewish calendar. Uh, so there's three of them, uh, Passover, uh, Pentecost, and uh, tabernacles or booths. In fact, the Jewish people are just finishing up uh, the festival of booths now, or, or uh, Sukkot as it's called, where they build these uh, even in their backyards or on their balconies, you can see they build these little booths and it commemorates their journey in the wilderness of how God protected them in this mobile uh, tent or tabernacle and walked with them and supplied their needs and taught them things out there in the desert. Uh, so when they would go to Jerusalem for these feasts, they would sing these psalms of ascents, we're told, as they would uh, go up the mountain uh, into Jerusalem and into the temple and so on for those three feasts. So it, 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 he gives two images here as to what it's like, two similes. It is like precious oil poured on the head. And we say, what do you mean, oil on the head? Shampoo? Like, what's he talking about? Precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard. Strange image. Running down on Aaron's beard. Who's Aaron, right? He's the first high priest of Israel. Uh, down upon the collar of his robes. Strange. We don't really relate to the image. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. So you have to know what in the world he's talking about to get the gist of this and why unity is kind of exceptional. 
uh, when he's talking about the oil that's running down, poured on the person and running down the beard. And then he mentions Aaron, the high priest, first high priest of the nation of Israel. Uh, he's drawing back to the moment that Aaron was anointed with this oil. And you can find the moment in several places um, in the Old Testament. I've, I've just put one of them on the screen there, Exodus chapter 30 and uh, verses 22 onwards there. Uh, so here's the incident, all right? Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, uh, half as much, that's 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon. So you've got myrrh and cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane. A shekel is their old measurement system back then. 500 shekels of cassia, according to the sanctuary shekel. So again, they're old units of measure. And a hint of olive oil. That was the mix. Uh, I remember a, uh, a person who tried to make that mix. Um, over in my previous church at Evangel, and some of you are from there. And uh, this person went to visit a rabbi and uh, wanted to try and make the mix. And it turned out pretty good. It had a really nice uh, smell in it, you know, the cinnamon and all these things. But it was a very specific mix that they would put together to anoint uh, the high priest here, make these into a sacred anointing oil a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer, it will be the sacred anointing oil. So this isn't just any oil. This is for a very, very unique and exceptional and special purpose. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting. Remember the, the tabernacle, the mobile uh, uh, place of meeting out there in the wilderness, the ark, it's the ark of the covenant, and the testimony, that's the tablets that Moses put the commandments on, the table and its articles, the lampstand, its accessories, the altar, the altar of burnt offering, the utensils, the basin, etc., etc. You consecrate them so they will be the most holy, again, special, unique condition here. Whatever touches them will be holy. Very special. Verse 30, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. And say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on men's bodies. Do not make any oil with the same formula. It's very, very unique. It is sacred. You are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and whoever uh, uh, puts it on any, anyone else than the priest must be cut off from his people. So very serious penalty for trying to clone it or duplicate this oil. But they would take the oil and they would pour it over Aaron, the high priest. And we're told in the psalm here, it would run down Aaron's beard. You see a little rendering of what Aaron would have looked like there. It would go down his beard and then it would go down the collar of his robes. Now, on Aaron there, you see uh, a special article there, and that represented the tribes of Israel. 
So the image was down from the head, down onto the beard. They would just jug all of this oil on this, this man for this purpose of being the high priest. And then it would go all over onto that uh, ephod, which had these stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what David is trying to say here is you see how the oil goes down Aaron goes down and it just covers everything and it's all everything is covered in that one oil the tribes of Israel are symbolically covered Aaron is the high priest so from God through to the priest through to the nation there is this image of unity you see that's what he's trying to to explain and then he goes into this other thing with uh, Mount Hermon and this dew from Mount Hermon that goes down. Uh, Mount Hermon, you can see in Israel uh, from the Sea of Galilee, all right? That's a striking picture. If you've ever been into that part of the world, that is on the Sea of Galilee, which you see in the foreground. And way in the back, you see Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the biggest uh, mountain in Israel. It is about uh, 9,500 feet high. It's covered with snow most of the year. It is absolutely massive. Uh, I've read that uh, for a small time in the year, they actually turn it into a ski resort and uh, people ski on it. And it is, it is breathtaking, uh, I'm sure, to see that mountain. You can see it just about anywhere up in northern Israel, but you don't really see it from the south, which is where Jerusalem is, uh, because of the distance. So from Mount Hermon to the Sea of Galilee, which is in the foreground, it's about 70 kilometers or so. But it, it takes a long time to drive between the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon because of the roads twist and turn and all that. It could take you hours, but it's only 70 kilometers. But then if you measure from Mount Hermon, which is what David mentions here, to Mount Zion, which is kind of flanks the city of Jerusalem, you've got 190 kilometers or so. Again, it'll take you six, seven hours to do the drive because of winding roads and all of that. So you've got quite a distance here. And he says this unity, it's like the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, 190 kilometers away. That's pretty spectacular. For there the Lord bestows his blessing. And Mount Zion has, or sorry, Mount Hermon has quite a history uh, because of its, of its height. I'll show you another picture there. It's just breathtaking. Because it, it was so high, there was all kinds of crazy worship stuff that happened there in the Old Testament. Uh, because in the view of the people who worshipped all the other gods and all that, the higher you were, the better, you, the more religious you were. So you see the term in the Old Testament, the high places. So the higher you were, it's like the more spiritual you were. You see all kinds of stuff. If you go to Mount Hermon, you can see all kinds of pagan shrines are carved in there. And what Mount Hermon does is it feeds uh, the Jordan River, and it feeds the Sea of Galilee, and it's covered in dew. Uh, so it's amazing. Now on the internet, what you can find if you know how to hunt around, because people take pictures of this stuff, and they go over there, and they report it. So it, it, you don't have rain for six months from May to October, but you have dew. And the dew, most of it, is going to come down 
from Mount Hermon down. Mount Hermon is in the north of Israel, but it will go down there even as far as the south, even as far as Mount Zion, as far as Jerusalem. Amazing. And the people would depend on that dew and do depend on that uh, between May and October because the, the fruit needs it and the agriculture needs it. And so they would time things so that they know, okay, from these months to these months, we're not going to get rain, but we're going to get that dew. And if you had a lot of dew uh, and the, the water would come from the Mediterranean to Mount Hermon and then down. So you the hydrological uh, cycle there, they call it. So if you get a lot of dew, you see these plants are drenched every night. It's not even raining. And up there on Mount Hermon, you see so much agriculture and so much green because of all of that dew. And if you get a lot of it, uh, then you're going to see growth even down in the south where there isn't any rain. So the image that he's trying to use here is the same kind of thing from, the, from God to the top of the mountain all the way down even to the southern part of Israel, even to Jerusalem, even to Mount Zion itself. You see it's all covered in the same dew. And this is the idea of unity that he's trying to build uh, with these images. Um, the opposite of unity is division. And that's what we see now in the year 2021. We see a, an awful lot of division. And it's a very, for David at least, it's a very, very important, very powerful experience when there's unity. For him, it's like there's blessing that comes in unity. It's good. It's pleasant. But it is exceptional. It's not automatic. Even as the anointing of Aaron was very specific, even as the dew comes down from Mount Hermon, to Mount Zion, this is exceptional, this is spectacular, it's not automatic. When you think about the opposite of unity, which is division, it strikes me that division is really the end result of a whole, a whole sort of soup of different things. Sometimes they're all combined, sometimes they're not. I'm going to tell you what I've seen just in, in church settings and in relationship settings really it's all the same uh and and these are kind of the top things that i've seen you see disunity or division when you have bad communication people don't know how to talk to one another people don't know how to communicate with another person says this other person hears that uh and there's there's bad communication uh just a tip for you uh communication experts they use two terms they say uh, assertive communication and active listening, they call it. In assertive communication, you say what you want. There's no mind reading in the relationship or in the company or on the sports team or in the classroom or in the church. You say what you want. You make it clear. And in active listening, the person who hears it repeats back to the person who said it, this is what I heard you say. And so you can have no ambiguity in the communication when you use those two skills. But some people don't have those skills. I've seen couples that don't have those skills. 
I do not have that skill instinctively. Ask my wife, she'll tell you, 27 years we've been married and I'm still learning how to communicate correctly. Wow, it's quiet, okay. Any of you relate? Yeah, okay. So, so when you have bad communication, it can, can be the introduction to division later on. When you can't resolve conflict, when people fight and they can't resolve it, when they fight dirty, they don't fight clean. In relationships, in organizations, they don't know how to conflict. Uh, in churches, I've seen this many times. Churches can be notoriously bad at resolving conflict. Notorious. Because what people do in churches when they have conflict is they bring God into the picture. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, who can argue with God? You're having a conflict with so-and-so in the church, and you say, well, God told me this, and God told me that, and you bring up verses from the Bible in your little petty conflict. What that does is that drags God into it, and you're using God as a little a fulcrum, a real nice, that's a really good technique, but who can argue with God? It just stops as soon as you bring God into your argument. Sometimes I wonder if God is saying, just keep me out of it, please. Go ahead and fight but keep me out of it. I don't want to be a part of your, of your petty conflict. And I've seen a lot of that happen where Christians do not know how to resolve conflict. Just a little tip for you when you're in a conflict, remove the emotion from your conflict. Relax, breathe, take a, take a chill pill if you have to. Just that's a bit of a joke, all right? Calm down when you're in a conflict. You know what you need to do? You need to schedule a time where you can meet and discuss your conflict and work out and resolve your conflict. But when you put emotion into it and heat and tears and clenched fists and little veins coming out of your neck and red face, and then you bring God into your conflict and spirituality into your conflict. You know what you have a recipe for? Division. It can happen. When there is a lack of trust, it can lead to division. You see this uh, even in Moses. And we looked at this rebellion that took place in the desert. There are a few of them that took place in the desert when Moses is trying to lead these people. You know, you've got a million plus people out in the wilderness for, for 40 years. God's trying to teach them lessons. And Moses has to lead these people. As I've often said to you, I have such admiration and respect for Moses, even though he was denied access to the promised land, it seems because of his temper, uh, which led to disobedience on what seems to be a detail, but he is held to a very high account. But I have so much admiration for him because he's dealing with all of these complainers all the time. Complain, 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 fight, conflict. And he's got a group of people several times that do not trust him. And they want him out, and they say, you have gone too far, Moses. Wow, trouble. When you have lack of trust, you have division. All these things can lead to resentment. So you couldn't communicate well. You couldn't resolve your conflict well. You have a lack of trust, and now you resent the other person. It's a long-term thing that you start to feel. And you feel resentment towards them or it or the organization, business, church, aunt and uncle, whatever. And you feel this resentment toward them. You have unresolved anger. The psalmist said, be angry, but do not sin. 
Paul quotes it in Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down, he says, while you're still angry and do not give the devil, he says, a foothold. When you have that unresolved anger, it can be a source of division, which if the scripture is correct that we have in front of us, division is the playground of the devil. And then you have this bitterness that comes into the heart. And here, when you take all of these things and you mix them together in this soup, you have a recipe for division. And we see it everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. These kinds of ingredients, unity so important and so difficult to achieve at times that even Jesus prays for it. I think it would be reasonable to say that if Jesus is praying for it, it might be pretty important. When we look at the prayer life of Jesus, I mean, uh, John chapter 17, verse 11, this is the end before he's going to go to the cross. You see Jesus pray this remarkable, uh, uh, this is part of his prayer. Uh, uh, it's a rather long prayer, but I'm just going to quote to you a couple of parts here. Um, he says in verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer. This is before his execution. And I am coming to you, implying his own death and resurrection. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. He's praying for his followers, for his disciples, the name you gave me, so that they may be one, even as we are one. That is a remarkable prayer from Jesus. So, do you ever see Jesus fight with God? Never. Jesus doesn't fight with the Father in the Gospels. Even when Jesus is going to face crucifixion, he, he does not get into a power struggle. Again, when in Jesus, you're talking about two natures. He's got the nature of God and the nature of humanity. You don't see him get into a power struggle with the Father. What does he say? He says, not my will, but yours be done. Wow, that's a remarkable unity. You're going to face a brutal, brutal execution there. And you say that, not my will, but yours be done. That's pretty impressive. And he's saying, listen, the same way that we are one, you never see that God the Father and God the Son argue. In the whole Bible, you never see them argue. They're they're united, completely united in thought, in action, in purpose, uh, in process. They are united. They're not walking in two different directions. And, you know, the angels in heaven are saying, oh, boy, what are we going to do with Jesus? He's such a rebel. He's always rebelling against the Father. I, mean, I don't know what to do with this son of God, maybe, but he's, you don't see the angels having conversations like this. You see unity in the relationship between Jesus and the Father, and this is what Jesus wants in his followers. He wants his followers to be one in the same way. That's a pretty powerful thing uh, to say, and, and he continues there, and he says... Um, um, uh, I'm coming to you now. Uh, I'll skip to I'll skip to verses 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me. So apparently, not just the original followers of Jesus there in the first century, but there are going to be others. The others go way into our time. 
We are the people who he's praying for. We are the people who he has on his mind. All who would follow him through the centuries before his return. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Hmm. The implication is when the world, the broader culture, the non-religious culture, the non-churched world, the non-believing world, when the world sees the community of faith, they look and they say, wow, that's very impressive because these people are united. Now, the question is, what are they seeing? Are they seeing that or are they not seeing it? I'll leave you to answer it for yourself. But it's, pow- it's important enough for Jesus that he made it an item of prayer right before he's executed. One would think he's, he's going to pray about some pretty important stuff. And we look now 20, 21 centuries later, and one could argue that the church is, wow, struggling at times with unity i'm not talking about necessarily a local congregation but what is the view that that people have of the church a lot of people look and they say that they're judgmental they they're condemning they fight with one another they take each other to court i've seen that happen and they look and they say well it's not that different is it (laughs) than the than the, the rest of us is it maybe that's why jesus prayed this prayer because for him it was extremely important he could see and he knew how difficult unity is to achieve and there are many many commands in the scripture about unity you can just survey the new testament alone and you will see dozens of them uh you do a do a search for the phrase one another it just in the new testament and you'll see like 35 45 different commands about how people are to treat one another all under the sort of pretext of being united it's that important not only to david not only to jesus but really the new testament is filled with these these little commands and these little examples of unity i'm just going to use one Uh, as we finish up today because I think it's the best one it's from Philippians chapter 2 and this is often read at Christmas time but really it's a statement about unity because there is a kind of a secret that I think we we lose sight of uh, today especially because the culture is so individualistic today oh my goodness I mean selfie 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 (laughs) people got their facebook page their twitter their instagram and it's all about them it's all about their life their thing their this their that their profile what they want to show to other people and i'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that but when we get so individualistic and so selfish that we have no sensibility about our neighbor or the person next to us 
And it's all about us, and we become like the center of our own universe. Yuck. This is not what Jesus had in mind when he prayed that prayer. But I think, in some ways, the technology that we have in our hands doesn't help the unity problem. In a way, it kind of adds to division. And these gadgets and gizmos and internet and all that was created to unite us. Uh, One could argue it's dividing us. I mean, the anxiety levels of young people because of, of social media, it's driving young people up the wall because they have to, it's a presentation and this is what they have to present to everybody and they have to keep it up and it turns into this kind of mask that they wear around. It's not them who they're showing and the anxiety, it seems like it's backfired. All of this technology and all of this stuff that we use, is it really, is it really bringing us closer or is it helping to divide us. Philippians 2 is the total opposite of this individualistic, self-centered mentality. If you have any encouragement from being united, there's the word, with Christ, if any comfort from his love, one would presume you have some, according to the writer here, it's Paul. If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Another statement about unity. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Again, unity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That individualistic me, myself, and I mentality. I've had the occasion of uh, going back and forth online with some Satanists over the last year. And uh, it's interesting dialoguing with Satanists, if you can keep your cool. Uh, but you know, the, the core belief of contemporary Satanism is not a bunch of people who worship, you know, uh, they, a lot of them don't even believe in the supernatural. For them, Satan is a figure of rebellion. Satan is a, a, a symbol of we will not do what people tell us to do. We will do what we want to do. And I am the God of my universe, and I make the decisions. There is no God. There is no supernatural. There's none of it. There's me. And I'm in charge, and I'm the boss, and nobody tells me what to do. That, my friends, is really the, one of the core tenets of modern contemporary Satanism. Uh, that may shock you, but really it's about self. It's about the individual, and the individual is God. And don't tell them any different. Yes, there are Satanists who do the whole supernatural thing and all of that. I'm not denying that. But in the contemporary world, it's really about me, myself, and I. And this completely opposes that. Completely. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others. Here's a little trick here. Consider others better than yourselves. Oof, that's a really hard thing for us sometimes. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. When you do that, Unity is easier to achieve because your your eyes are not on yourself first and foremost. They are on others. This is, in fact, the Christian ethic. 
This is what Jesus taught. This is what makes his teaching so attractive. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. The golden rule. This is what makes some of the things that he says so attractive to people. Because your attitude, he's saying, should not be first and foremost about you. It should be about others, the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Whoa. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant. That's the trick, you see. You take your eyes off of yourself and you put your eyes on others and you begin to serve others. I do that a couple of times a week over at Mission Nouvelle Génération, the food bank at Brossard. And it's amazing when you start getting interested in other people and you start to figure out what makes them tick and you start to hear their stories. Wow, it really puts things in perspective. When you hear some of the things that people have endured and some of the traumatic things and some of the injustices that people have endured, wow, you realize it's a much bigger world than just me, 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 me. A servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, on a, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But he's citing the example of Jesus who emptied himself, being in nature, in his very nature, God emptied himself, humbled himself, and served people. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, Jesus said, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you want to crack uh, division and you want to learn to be united, use the example of Jesus and serve other people. And when you do that, you'll find unity is a lot easier to achieve in your marriage, in your close relationships, in your family, your extended family, your neighborhood, your workplace, your classroom, your sports team. It works anywhere, but we have to be intentional about it. I'd invite Simon and Viano if they come and you guys can go ahead and play in the background. Just want to pray for you because I know that there are people who you, you, for you, you say, my goodness, you know, is it ever true that there's a lack of unity? Is it ever true that there's division? Is it ever true in my own personal situation, you might say, that there's division and, and conflict and strife, and you might be dealing it in, with it in your own household? Uh, so I want to pray for you today. Maybe you're in school and it's the same thing for you. It's division, division. You're working in a place and there's division. There's conflict all the time, all the time. And it's like sandpaper uh, waiting on you and grinding you and get just, just discouraging you. Father, I pray for each person 
who is in the room today, people who are watching online, people who are going to watch later, people who are going to listen to audio later. Oh God, it's a big, big thing for us today. Wow, if only people could see a church where there's true unity and harmony. If only they could see relationships where there's unity and harmony and where they would look and say, I want that unity. I want that harmony. I want those, that peace that those people have. Oh God, I pray uh, that you would stir us to make whatever changes that we need to make. God, may we not buy the, the, uh, the culture's presentation of selfishness and uh, that being the only solution, just look after your own self. May we not buy it, God, but may we serve others. May we look at the interests of others. May we humble ourselves and serve. May we take the example of Jesus. I pray for parents in this room raising their kids and, and, and working through struggles and and uh, maybe divisions and rebellion with their kids. I pray for marriages where there's just this constant, constant division and strife. Oh, in the name of Jesus, through your spirit, you can work in people's lives. It's like the, it's like the dew that can travel 150 kilometers. It's like the, the oil that goes down the beard of the priest and covers all of Israel symbolically. God, may we be covered together with the Spirit of God, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you today. I hope it's been a challenge and an encouragement to you. Uh, don't run out too quickly. Wedland will be in the corridor if you want to give something uh, today with electronics. I'll be floating around there. Would love to greet you before you leave today. God bless you, everyone. Remember to pick up your kids and have a great weekend.
the sun.